The nascent 6th IPCC report has sent a clear message. We are one minute to midnight and the rate and scale of action that is required is immense. How do we meet this moment in a way that builds resilience for those communities that are on the front lines of climate impacts in a bottom-up approach that leaves no one behind? In this episode, we'll be discussing locally-led adaptation principles and practice, particularly in the Global South and what we can learn from this. We're joined by two experts, Harini Nagendra, Professor in Sustainability at Azim Premji University in India, with over 25 years of experience in research and working with communities on restoration of ecosystems in urban areas, and Salim Haq, Director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development and Professor at the Independent University of Bangladesh, a strong and renowned advocate for locally-led adaptation. My name is Emil Harikishan. Welcome to Rethink Talks. Harini, Salim, so fantastic to have the both of you joining us here today to discuss the crucial topic, particularly in the era that we're living in, uh, both with COVID-19 and in light of the sixth IPCC report, we're certainly one minute to midnight, and the need for working with communities and locally-led adaptation has never been clearer. Um, to kick us off, uh, I thought I'd hand over to you to discuss what locally-led adaptation means to you and the work that you do. Uh, Harini, let's start with you. Sure. Thank you, Emil. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you and Salim Ulhaq and uh, to talk about this. As you say, we're really close to the cliff. And I think our problem is, as Ban Ki-moon put it so eloquently some time ago, we're heading towards the cliff with our foot on the accelerator. So we really need adaptation. We can't just focus on mitigation anymore. And we need adaptation to be local. Mitigation, of course, has to be more global uh, in, in design and focus. In terms of my own work, which has been both on forests and cities in India, there are multiple things I think that we need to do. One is to understand at the forest level how local communities can be part of adaptation to climate change. And much of the adaptation mechanisms are still largely top-down. But, for instance, agroforestry communities or uh, collective action on water body management. How can all of this be done in conjunction with the government? So one of the things we have been looking at is how a number of the governments um, in India has this large program called the Mahatma Gandhi Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, which gives you certain days of employment every year. And some states are using this incredibly innovatively to provide resilience against climate change by using this money for people to uh, restore water bodies. And of course, this is a very good thing because water is one of the first signs of distress in terms of climate change. There are unintended consequences of mitigation that can then further create problems for in terms of adaptation for climate change. For instance, if you have a lot of solar panels in some rural areas, that increases heat. So another thing we need to look at is how do you then do adaptation to those things, which are human unintended consequences of mitigation mechanisms that are required. In the cities, again, a focus of what we've been doing is looking at urban collective action for lake rejuvenation, for tree protection, for tree plantation. And that, again, is something that we need so critically for in terms of uh, adaptation to climate change, because cities are going to be ground zero in multiple ways. 
partly because of their population density, but also just because of urban heat islands. And countries like India and Bangladesh are going to have that double whammy of heat, humidity, and you know this population density. What we've seen in places like Bangalore is lake restoration or water body restoration done by communities can be really effective. For instance, we had really bad cases of flooding in Bangalore three years ago. The places that did not flood were the places where lakes were restored by local communities. So I think those are very clear signals of the way we need to move forward. Excellent. Thank you, Harini. And over to you, Salim. So uh, similar to Harini, my experience for the last 20 years has been working with some of the most vulnerable communities in some of the most vulnerable countries in Asia and Africa. There are a group of countries called the least developed countries. There's 48 of them, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in Asia, including my country, Bangladesh. And we initially started working with the vulnerable communities who also happen to be the poorest communities uh, on what we used to call community-based adaptation that has now evolved into locally-led adaptation, uh, which includes not just the, uh, the communities themselves, but also local government, local private sector, uh, other actors that are working in, in a particular location. And the reason for that is that adaptation uh, to climate change is extremely location specific. Uh, depends on uh, a place and the impacts of climate change that that place is suffering, uh, and then how to get people who are living there uh, to be part of the solution. And unfortunately, the experience so far has been a very top-down. Wherever it happens, many places is just ignored, and and nothing happens. People are left to their own devices. But even where there are interventions being done by national governments or international agencies, they're done in a very top-down manner that uh, regards the local communities as simply mere recipients or targets of uh, uh, support from above without taking their views into account, without consulting them, without uh, building on the knowledge that they have of their circumstances, which is far superior uh, to the knowledge that any outsider like myself has. And so what I've been working on for the last 20 years is uh, in being able to, enabling these communities to get their voices heard, uh, to capture the knowledge, experiential knowledge, indigenous people's knowledge, and make sure that that feeds into decision-making at a higher level, whether it's local national government, local city mayors, for example, or national ministries uh, at the national level and indeed at the global level for global uh, supporters and funders in particular uh, to make the case that uh, the most vulnerable people need to be prioritized and supported and the way things are happening at the moment, neither of that is happening. First of all, they're not getting support and wherever there is any support flowing, it's very top down. They're being told what to do. They're not being listened to in terms of what needs to be done. Uh, so that's a, a sort of uphill struggle that uh, I'm involved in. We are making progress, but we have to make a lot faster progress going forward. Great, thank you. And Salim, while we're on you, what does it mean to have a co-created bottom-up resilience action that speaks to the priorities and needs of these communities? Sure, so I'll cite a couple of examples from my country, Bangladesh, which I would argue has, um, being one of the most vulnerable countries, has known that for over a decade, 
and has been doing things uh, to deal with it. And one of them is the realization that uh, local communities possess a lot of knowledge and experience that needs to be supported and tapped. So the, the notion of locally led adaptation is very much embedded in the national priorities, both by the government and by very large number of civil society organizations, NGOs that operate in Bangladesh. I'll cite an example from each of them. So one of the, in fact, the big, biggest global NGO at the moment is a Bangladeshi NGO called BRAC. Uh, they're obviously the biggest NGO in Bangladesh, but they also happen to be the biggest NGO in about a dozen least developed countries in Asia and Africa, uh, and have been the biggest NGO in the whole world for the last few years running. Um, and BRAC has a very, very big program. Uh, one of their programs on climate change is what they call a climate bridge fund that provides uh, small amounts of funding to local communities in a number of towns. It's very urban oriented and it's focusing on climate migrants who are coming into these towns and living in the slums and facing climate uh, problems. A lot of them water related, sanitation related and enabling them to uh, do things together with the municipal authorities to help them adapt to the conditions where they're living. One of the big challenges in doing locally led adaptation is that the local communities don't need huge amounts of money. They need small amounts of money, but giving small amounts of money to many, many different groups is not an easy task. <laughs> Governments and funders would rather give one big chunk money to somebody and tell them to, to run a big program rather than have to give lots of small amounts. And so that is a challenge that uh, BRAC has taken on. And it is a small grant program that is provided to small communities with support, with technical assistance, with advice uh, to enable them to do what they think is best to adapt to the conditions that they're living in. Now, scaling that up at the national government level, there's a program that the government is doing together with UNDP and the UN uh, Climate Development Fund. Uh, and that is also providing similar sorts of funding to local authorities. These are elected local um, upazilas, we call them in Bangladesh, like your panchayats in India, who develop a adaptation plan for the locality, and then they can apply for funding and they get funded to do that. So they are the ones in charge of the planning and doing what they want to do. And then they can get support from the national government to do that. It's right now being piloted in about 30 or 40 upazilas uh, out of several hundred. And hopefully, and the results are so far quite good, and we are planning to scale that up uh, to the national level to enable. That's not the only thing. There is still a lot that needs to be done by national governments, but it is a complementary bottom-up uh, scaling up of uh, people's initiatives that can then be uh, uh, harmonized with top-down initiatives by the national government and by international agencies as well. And that's really what, what we are aiming to do, is to have a a, a more robust bottom-up input into design, implementation, and indeed even monitoring of results. If the local people, the vulnerable people aren't happy with what's happened, then that can be a, a good uh, uh, outcome in terms of whether or not it was successful. It's not the donors who will measure success, by, but the people on the ground who should be the ones measuring success. Great, thank you, Salim. And Harini, your work on community restoration uh, of ecosystems, particularly in urban areas in India, is incredibly fascinating. And I'm sure you have a lot to add to this, so over to you. 
Thanks. Thanks, Anil. And thanks, Salimur, because this is very fascinating. And I think you, you're, I think the kinds of um, programs you're describing in Bangladesh can be really an excellent source of learning for other countries across the world if this moves successfully. Uh, Amil, as you said, a lot of the work with uh, local communities in Indian cities, I've been looking at this over the past 15, 16 years. One of the things we find very interesting, we've recently done an analysis of the few city adaptation plans for climate change. There aren't too many and they're couched in different ways. Some are called city resilience plans, some are called heat action plans. And, you know, so they're called different things. But if you put them together, what you find is even the most successful ones completely avoid any incorporation of nature. They are such engineered technical approaches. I'll give you an example. Ahmedabad is a city in India that has had heat waves year after year. It's one of the hottest cities. And it has one of the best city action plans in India, which has been extremely successful. They've been documented to have reduced hundreds of thousands of deaths in the past four, five years that it's been running. Still, their focus is on painting roofs white and working with informal settlements to have uh, SMS-based, you know, text messages-based app services and uh, alarms so people can get into community centers. It could be a mosque, it could be a library, it could be some kind of a temple, whatever, some kind of a shelter where you get away from the heat and can hang out in a cool and dark place. However, Ahmedabad is also very very well known for its banyan trees. Okay, It's also very well known for its water bodies. It has a very old river running through the heart of it. Now, if the plan could have also incorporated the plantation of a lot of trees and then restoring some of these water bodies, that could have been a much more cohesive plan. And you just don't find elements of this. It's not Ahmedabad specifically. Like I said, that is still the best plan and it's been very successful. But you don't find elements of this anywhere. That is beginning to change though. And so I'll give you another example that is a really good example of how nature has been used. In the city of Chennai in South India, they have a chief resilience officer who's been working on how to use community gardening in innovative ways. So what he's saying is work with informal settlements. Why paint the roof white? Why not just give them some kinds of materials in which you can grow plants on the, t- on the rooftop? That way you get food, you improve nutrition. And he's also talking about innovative ways in which you can use recycled water for grazing this food. And so you, I think this is a very important lesson for us because Indian cities are so crowded. Well, most least developed countries, you know, the kinds of cities we're growing are incredibly congested, especially in certain parts of the city. So anything you do must be multifunctional. I think that's the one thing we're learning about adaptation. It must hit as many buttons as it can. If you can provide nutrition while providing greening, while providing some place for social capital to come together, and while providing technical knowledge to increase of communities, not for engineers to come in with just purely technical knowledge, but this collaborative approach. I think that's going to be the real way forward that we must use for local adaptation. Thank you, Harini. Increasingly becoming more topical to talk about South-South learning, and it's important for countries in the global South to be learning from one another and sharing their knowledge and experience. And one step further from that is also what the global North can learn from the global South in advancing adaptation and resilience action. What support and changes are needed to advance this? I think one of the things we really need to do is figure out at an international level, for instance, organizations like Future Earth, which are very influential in leading these, how are they going to restructure their funding programs? Or how are we going to structure our conferences on global environmental change 
to allow for specific focus on South-South learning and South-to-North learning. And so I think there's a lot of potential. But if you look at the way these programs are designed, climate adaptation, any global environmental change funding program, let's take the Belmont Forum, which funds a lot of these programs. The funding is disproportionately going to be for global North countries. And it's going to be disproportionate for the po- to the point where, let's say, India or South Africa maybe gets 5% or 10% of the funding that the US or countries in Europe will get. What's going to happen? You're going to get theory driven from the US and case studies from these other countries because, I mean, the funding is going to drive everything, right? So if you have to have South-South learning, you have to have funding programs that dis- specifically fund South-South learning. You have to have conferences with side events that are specifically for South to North learning. And you just don't get these. Looking at all of the programs, you know, sitting on review committees, for instance, for many of these programs, they're still designed with this very explicit idea that uh, a low biodiversity, temperate country in, let's say, North America or Europe will teach a high biodiversity tropical country in um, somewhere in, let's say, South Asia or Africa, how to conserve its biodiversity, which it doesn't work. But the programs are set up in that way. Right? So we have to have different ways of designing these because unless we do that, I mean, the money from the money flows the power. So this is something that is very uh, dear to my heart. Uh, I would argue that um, the greatest experts on adaptation to climate change are not uh, scholars with PhDs like myself, but people in Mumbai and Dhaka who are dealing with the problem and coming up with ways of dealing with it. If they don't die, they survive. They are an expert in survival uh, and they are the local adapters, I call them, the ones with the knowledge and experience far greater than ours. And so we need to learn from them. We need to be humble. We need to be dealing with them with humility and co-produce. Our advantage is we can produce knowledge in a systematic manner that they cannot, but they have extremely useful experiential knowledge that can be tapped and harnessed. And so we can co-produce the knowledge on adaptation with them. And then that becomes useful in a context of sharing that with other places within the same country or other countries within a region or even other countries across continents. And having worked on adaptation for the last 20 years, I would say that there are two very critical paradigm shifts that are needed in terms of learning. Firstly, adaptation is a learning by doing. If you're not doing, then you're not going to be able to learn. It's not theory to practice. It is practice to theory. And secondly, the best way of sharing that knowledge is not through books or even videos, but through peer-to-peer learning. People sharing the same problem in Mumbai, coming to Dhaka and seeing what we are doing, and then similarly the other way around, is far, far more useful in terms of people understanding what's being done and then figuring out how they can adapt it to their own circumstances. Because the things cannot be transferred. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But knowledge and experience can be learned from each other. And, And this also goes to learning in the North. I would argue that rich countries are not well adapted at all. Um, Just to cite the example of the recent floods in Germany, where nearly 200 Germans, the richest country in the world, lost their lives. In Bangladesh, we don't lose lives like that anymore. We have floods. We have much bigger floods than theirs. But people get evacuated. They get warned and evacuated. They know what to do when there's a flood coming. The Germans didn't. 
and so they can learn from us. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Salim. And, and a great line from there. It's not theory to practice, but practice to theory. Let's talk about empowerment. What are some of the biggest steps that we need to take, both at the local, national, um, and regional and international levels, to further push for this empowerment that's needed? There are a number of steps that we could take at the local, from the local to the larger scale level. For instance, I'll give you an example from some work we've been doing on urban foraging in Bangalore. And we were trying to understand the importance of wild spaces in the city. Because, of course, we have green spaces, but they're very manicured. And when you look at low-income communities, especially women, and women in their 40s and 50s and 60s, because this is culturally changing. So these women still have the custodial knowledge of traditional, of how to forage for plants and how to cook them and what's good for making your hair not fall or what's good for preventing knee pain or what's good for, you know, making sure that you don't have, if you have a stomach upset, you don't need to go to the doctor. We found, we just surveyed 200 families and this is the heart of Bangalore, which is, I mean, it's an old city. It's, it's, uh, it's been around from the 1600s. If you look at a city like Bangalore and nobody would believe women are foraging in the heart of the city, from 200 women, we got close to 100 different species that they were foraging for. We found the th- existence of thriving markets I'm local, as local as it gets from Bangalore. I didn't know these markets were there. But you can go and commission women to go and forage in the woods around Bangalore to get some of these species that are dying out in the city. Now, what some groups are doing in Bangalore is turning this into an advantage. So during COVID time, many of these women who were working as domestic help lost their jobs. So what they're doing is training them to forage for these and communities, for instance, a house like mine could pay... uh, women like this to collect and forage for these greens and drop by a produce a set of mixed greens to your house, let's say once a week, and also teach you how to cook with them because we have no idea how to cook with these greens. So it's, it's also an inversion of power. Along with the employment, I think what's very subversive here, which is very important, is this inversion of power where they are the teachers and we need to learn from them, which always should have been the case, but there's such few places in cities to set up this kind of inversion of power. right? So I think these kinds of instances, it's it's a little harder on the international scale to kind of interfere with these mechanisms and get them in. But if there are ways to do this kind of inversion of power, I think that's something we really need to, f- to focus on. Uh, in my view, you've put your finger on the nub of the issue, which is the reason why people are vulnerable, and most of the time it's poor people who are vulnerable, is because whoever's the decision maker in their nat- national circumstances doesn't really care much about them. They don't have a voice in national governance, wherever the country they happen to be in. And so uh, what we are talking about when we do talk about locally led adaptation is about helping uh, level the playing field in which these communities are operating and enabling their voices to be heard. And this is true no matter whether it's a poor country or a rich country. Even if you look at the rich countries right now, the people that are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and indeed to COVID-19 are the poorest communities, the people living in the slums in the big cities, the people of color in the United States and in Europe. So there is a disparity in governance terms of the poor and the most vulnerable who are neglected by the decision makers in their own countries that needs to be corrected. And the climate change issue adds one other dimension to this, which is not just poor versus rich, but polluters versus victims of pollution. Climate change is caused by rich people in rich countries primarily, 
and the impacts are on poor people in poor countries, poor people in rich countries as well, who are going to bear the brunt. And that is absolutely wrong and immoral and therefore needs to be corrected. The principles for locally led adaptation, as initially articulated by the Global Commission on Adaptation, have since been endorsed by over 40 organizations around the world, including ICAD, including the Global Resilience Partnership. Salim, are you optimistic that this high-level or international endorsement by these organizations is going to translate into the tangible action on the ground? Are you optimistic about that? I, I am indeed optimistic that it is happening, uh, but I am pessimistic that it's happening too slowly. And so to me, the trick isn't making something happen, but making it happen at speed and scale that is commensurate with the, the problem and the emergency and the crisis we are in. And uh, it's very good that these organizations have all signed up to the principles, uh, but that is only the first step. They now have to apply them and implement them and practice them. And my own um, contribution to this uh, exercise, collective exercise that we've all started, is to try and empower, as I said a little earlier, the uh, local communities and leaders themselves to be the judges of success, not the donors who are giving money, who evaluate, come in and evaluate uh, how their money was spent, but the people on the ground who evaluate the donors and the national government on whether or not they were helped by these different agencies that are external to them. And uh, what we are working on is a network of locally led adapters who can provide that information, collect that information, and we do a big annual conference every year. We call it Goveshana. It's a Bangla word for research on locally led adaptation. We've gone virtual, so it's a global uh, platform now. Every January, we have a a seven-day-long, 24-7 series of sessions with local actors. And that is going to be the judge and jury on whether or not these big organizations who have signed up to these principles actually deliver on those principles or not. Um, I'm hopeful, but uh, um, um, they need to be uh, quick and and change their working ways very, very quickly. The, the first, the last thing I'd say, which is something that they have to do, is to accept that they've done it wrong so far. They have not achieved what they were supposed to be doing, okay? So the starting point is you got it wrong, accept that you've got it wrong, accept you want to do it right, and now do it right. Great. Thank you, Salim. And Harini, are you optimistic about the future as well? in terms of how we take these things that we're reflecting on now during COVID and really push that into a better future for the cities that we want to see, where we have trees, where it leads to adaptation and resilience, but also just to a more enriched life. Are you optimistic, Rumi? I'm always optimistic because I think if one is not optimistic, I don't see what we can do from here. You know, we, we have one planet, we have to stick around, we have to do what we can. That said, I'll tell you where I'm more optimistic and where I'm less optimistic. Uh, I am definitely more optimistic that even the the vast majority of people who live in cities, I think, have been so busy, just caught up in the daily mechanics of living, that we have not had these conversations about nature and why nature is important to us. Except for, you know, we we need biodiversity somewhere out there. We need climate change to be fixed somehow, but 
we in the city don't have, it doesn't pertain to me in my everyday life. And I think COVID and lockdowns have really taught us the importance of having nature all around us, wherever we, wherever we live and whoever we are, right? So there I, I can see that, that that change has really come about. Where I'm not so optimistic is how does this change the structures that we have? And our structures are set up still to continue economic development as and growth as, as ever. And so we did see that in the first half of 2020, or let's say from March onwards for about six months, uh, carbon, the amount of CO2 emissions dropped steeply. But what we see is since then, they have risen so steeply again that they've overtaken that drop. And they're now more than they were in 2019. So where is this going to go? We can't have a lockdown every time because the human cost of these lockdowns for uh, reducing climate change is too steep. We can't afford that. And so how do we do something structural is where I'm struggling with. And I, I, I'll, I'll agree with Salim. I'm, it's nice to see the progress, like the C40 cities and the kinds of uh, things that they're putting together to slow down climate change. It's nice that it's, it's European cities, but it's not only European cities. And I see a lot of Latin American cities coming forth with these innovative programs that hopefully other cities in the global south can learn from. But it's also too slow and too little. Excellent. Thank you. Certainly the, the pace and scale at which we need to take action is, is a message that's, that's ringing out from, from both of your, your answers. But as a young professional working in this field, I'm, I'm certainly happy to hear that there's still optimism. And uh, I always say that I'm a pragmatic optimist um, in that we have to be clear about how things need to be done. Uh, but we certainly need to be hopeful for a future in which we can all thrive together. Professor Harini Nagendra, Professor Salim Ulhaq, thank you very much for joining us to discuss this important topic. And I certainly look forward to working with the both of you in the future uh, as we work towards uh, resilience action that is locally led. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Amil. Thanks, Salim. You've listened to Rethink Talks, a podcast produced by the Stockholm Resilience Centre at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth, and don't forget to subscribe.